There, there's a new way to think about this. There's a new paradigm for energy in Africa, I think, now. You bundle the mini grids and the Bitcoin mining together, and you get your return on investment in seven years instead of 20, or if ever, because they weren't sustainable. Hello there. How are you all doing? Happy Friday. Have you had a good week? You keeping busy, keeping out of trouble. Right, I'm going to be heading back out to the US in a month. Me and Danny are going to be heading to Nashville for the Lightning Conference. I'm going to head out to Austin for a few days. And then I'm going to be off to Argentina to make a film. Another film for the Bolo the Money series. Can't wait for that. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Eric Herzman on the show. He's from Gridlers, and he's joined by my good friend, Bitcoin miner, Marshall Long, who was recently in my other film, my other Follow the Money film, where I talked about Bitcoin mining. Now, the work Eric and his team at Gridless are doing out in Africa is incredible. And I spoke to Marshall about this when we made the film, and he's been out there himself. So whilst we were in Miami, Danny and I said, let's get them two together. So very cool. Me and Danny are going to try and get out to Africa ourselves and see it firsthand, hopefully in December. Probably going to make another film, which will be very cool. But listen, let me know what you think about this. Give me your feedback. You can hit me up on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Got the mining boys in town. Eric, how are you? Good. How are you? Good to meet you in person. I'm good. Yeah, likewise. It's good to not do it over some uh, ropey internet. Some bad internet connection from some village in Africa. Yeah. And Marshall, thank you for coming on my film. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming in. Uh, lots to talk about, always, uh, especially mining, because I know a lot more about it now. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, also want to talk about all the work you've been doing uh, in Africa. Uh, Marshall spoke to me about that as well when I saw him recently. Um, I am conscious we've got four white guys here going to talk about Africa. Um, <laughs> With a guy whose Twitter handle is white African. Yeah, white African. <laughs> but I'm conscious about that. Um, you know, we, we're going to head out to Africa at some point. We, we've got to cover Bitcoin there. Um, but I'm, I'm aware there's some criticisms from, from people in Africa who are discussing that the Bitcoin approach to Africa seems to be a little bit poverty porn. And there's actually good things happening in Africa as well as difficult things. So I'm conscious of that. Um, but Eric, I'm going to ask you just to kind of like set the scene for Bitcoin in Africa. Okay. Not, not a small. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, so, yeah, um, I think broadly speaking, uh, Bitcoin in Africa has, has a, there's, a, there's a deep need for it, right? I think that's the biggest response to it. How that need is answered, it varies. So right now we're seeing that there's a lot of people who are buying it and what you don't know is who they are, right? Nor should you. Um, but it seems to be, it's a lot of middle upper class and upper class people who are buying it as a way to hedge against their local currencies. Uh, I think what most of the Bitcoin community in Africa is looking at though, is how does this Bitcoin used by ordinary people in everyday life? And there's a bunch of things to unpack in that, uh, one of which is on-ramps and off-ramps, which are a big problem right now. Uh, The use of is is something that's a little bit easier to get your head around. Um, And there's some really great opportunities in that space and people executing on it, like Machankura. But, you know, I've I've done, I can talk a little bit more about this, but the, the Kenyan Bitcoin community got together and did a bunch of research on every on and off ramp to buy Bitcoin. And um, I'm putting all that research together right now 
it was against, I think, eight or nine different levels of, you know, everything from UX to, how, you know, how long it takes to liquidity, all, all these different things, how technical you have to be to use it. And it's a major, it's a major barrier. Uh, so a lot of interesting things happening. I think more will be happening, but it's also very nascent. It's early days. And what what are the primary needs for Bitcoin in Africa? You talked about um, people are hedging risk with currency. Um, is it generally the same use cases that I would have, or are there actually different ones that I wouldn't be aware of? They'd be, they'd be similar to what other Bitcoiners are facing around the world, which is like, how do you bypass the banks that, you know, make transactions too slow for businesses? Uh, or you have to do, you know, if I even am receiving into my bank in, the, in, in Kenya uh, $1,000, I have to send them a letter signed with ink uh, to state why it's coming in and who it's coming from. Even at a thousand dollars. Even at a thousand dollars. Every thousand dollars. Every time, right? Otherwise, it'll come in and they might refuse it. Most of the times, they will refuse it. And so there's like, and that's not even withdrawing it. That's receiving it. Okay, right? so that's actually worse than what we face here. So it varies. So it depends on your bank. Depends on your country. We're you know we're talking about a, a continent with fifty four countries, and it varies significantly between all of these countries as well. And um, you know, so you're dealing with that kind of level, which is a business trying to use it. Uh, then you're also dealing with you know ordinary people. How do you transact to send money if you come from Uganda but you live in Kenya? It's actually quite difficult. You have to use a, you know some type of MoneyGram option for that, and that's fairly expensive. Uh, you know, then there, so there's banks, borders. Uh, those are the two kind of biggest use cases. And I think the 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 real long term story is what's your hedge against your local currency, where you have massive devaluation happening, or you could have, depending on you know the the way the government has acted in the past two, five, or ten years. And, and we're starting to see that. You see, like just last year, Ghana had a major devaluation in its currency. Uh, you have that happening in Kenya. We've lost 20% uh, value in our currency over the last year. And, you know, those kind of things happening do have an effect on you. Now, most people, and I'm talking about like in, in every country, most of the people in Africa do not have enough for savings. So what they'll be doing is putting their money into something. Um, traditionally, that's been put into land. Uh, or something like that that will hold its value or perceived hold hold its value, right? Uh, in Kenya, that's that's why land prices are so high. Uh, but what what else is there to put it into? What happens if they if the if land isn't the only option anymore? And anyway, it, there's there's a whole there's a whole area there that's really interesting to unpack and see what real people do in real in their real lives when savings either a isn't an option or the options for the savings being a traditional bank are not good. Okay, and. Can you just talk to me a little bit more general about uh, the economic situation in the various countries you're aware of in Africa? And what I specifically want to know is like, what is what is the good stuff? What is the bad stuff? We tend to hear the bad stuff more. You know, yeah. News and media does tend to report on you know, corruption or political strife or you know, uh, famines, uh, civil wars, etc. But but I'm also fully aware there are parts of Africa that are thriving. The economy is thriving in certain parts of Africa. What, what are we not seeing? Yeah, I think what, we, what we're what we used to in the West is the media narrative that we've had for 
I don't know, 30, 40 years. Since Ethiopia, basically. Right. Well, which is, it's either, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it, but the, I, you know, there's a really, uh, there's a famous saying, which is the, the Africa that's of the eighties and nineties is not the Africa of today. Okay. And, and yet we have that Africa in our head. And so there's other good things that are also in the media narrative, which is like Kenyan or Ethiopian runners, right? Yeah. Uh, or safaris. And all the tourism that comes with that, uh, the wildlife. And those are also generalities and can be cliche also, just as all the negative things, all the negative stereotypes can be also uh, as well. So, um, you know, what's going on that's good there? Well, you do have a massive amount of people who are just really entrepreneurs, mostly born of necessity because they have to. There's not as many uh, like ordinary big company or medium-sized company jobs. So they're out there as entrepreneurs hustling, making things happen. People work hard. Uh, they, they are smart. Uh, there's guys who are just like really working their butts off to try and make their way in the world and making it to great universities all over, all over the globe. And, um, then they're coming back and they're building businesses or they get in government, which sometimes goes sideways. Um, and, uh, you know, so you have this, you have this population base that's young, like Africa, it does have the, I think the youngest demographic in the world, as far as continents go, uh, with, I think the average age being around 16 or 18, somewhere in that range. And so it's a young continent that has a lot of growth, uh, a lot of, uh, raw materials and resources. And it's about the, the government and the people then figuring out how can we align what we actually have that's really strong about us and do something with it instead of being used by other countries around the world, which is what's happened for the last, you know, 50 or 100 years. Well, it goes back to that uh, Gladstein economic imperialism stuff. I don't know if you've read his latest book or listened to the yeah, show. Yeah, the essay. Where he's talking about, yeah. like, the IMF giving yeah, loans yeah. to the shrimpers and all that yeah. kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in terms of major cities, how well-developed is the infrastructure? Like, if I go to a major city in Africa, is it great Wi-Fi, you know, great transport? Mm. Is, it, is it pretty much like any major city? Yeah, if you go to your, you know, Cape Towns and Joburgs are probably the furthest along. Um, Nigeria has Lagos and, you know, Kenya has uh, Nairobi. You know, I've got Cairo. Those are big cities that are big global cities. And they're, they're going to have everything you would expect. Uh, sometimes more traffic than you would expect to, though. I mean, it's like you can get, you can be standstill traffic sometimes. But um, yeah, you can get pretty much anything you would find in the West uh, or even in Asia, you can find there. It's going to have its own way about it. Africa is Africa, uh, the same way, you know, Europe is Europe. And so it has its own, you know, Intricacies, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you get that here. Yeah, you totally get it. But you know, and you know, it's got its own flavor. People are very um, uh, open and friendly uh, m across most of the continent. It's hard to speak in generalities about the whole continent, but across most of the continent, people are very open and, and generous and friendly. And I think that generosity actually surprises a lot of, of Westerners when Surprise they come in. Me. When I got there, I was thinking, you know, this is going to be similar to Puerto Rico. You know, everybody thinks you're a colonizer, imperialist. It was awesome. Everybody's just like, oh, you're another dude. What's up? It was, <laughs> it was really cool. Which parts did you go to? So I've only been once to see these guys, and I went just to Kenya. And which parts? You went to Nairobi and we now to Nairobi. The we went to... We went up country to the mines, uh -huh. and then we went off to uh, safari uh, for a couple of days. And, okay, so talk me through your experience just arriving. Mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was like, quick judged by the airports. I think you get a lot from the airport. Like, but you're when a I went great to taxi driver. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> he's, uh, pulls up in a 1970s uh, Land Rover. Love it. No, Land Rover. I don't do Land Rovers. Yeah. I do Land Cruisers. So Land it's Cruiser. important. This is like, that's this is, this is a hotly contested Pepsi, okay? thing. Right. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was expecting the Africa of the 90s. Okay. 100%. And I felt after my trip, I told people I was lied to about Africa. You know, it's like we were talking about earlier. It's a land where everything grows in my limited experience, right? The people were super hospitable. The food was great. Internet was fast. It was, at least in Nairobi, it was very not what I was expecting. I was expecting, you know, to get off the plane and people immediately tell you to go back home. And it was not like that at all. It was very welcoming and very different than what I thought. Felt safe? Oh, yeah. And in terms of the Bitcoin world, the external Bitcoin world outside of Africa, uh, I'm really conscious to not uh, be exploitative of Africa and and talk about it as this great opportunity where in the back of my mind I'm just trying to grow Bitcoin and not really having the right empathy for what the needs and the pressing needs are there. But if if you were to speak to the kind of general Bitcoin community, what would you, would you be saying we should be doing to support Africa? And I don't say that like as some kind of charity. Um, we should be supporting South America, which we've done. We've been out to South America. Mm-hmm. You know, what What is it, the specific needs that... So it's. I think it's just like any other thing. Like I've been in the tech industry in in Africa for decades now, and uh, it's just like it's. You know, you have entrepreneurs who are trying to build things in the Bitcoin space. Um, where they get their investment from doesn't matter. It's capital that gets put to work for something that grows uh, the pie, right? And um, and so I think that's one area. Is like look for the entrepreneurs who are actual builders and and you know support them. Right, uh, there's some really good education efforts going on, community growth as- efforts that I, uh, I I'm not involved in because I'm not I'm a builder, I'm not a, a community person in that way, and I think those are fantastic though. I hope they they get more support too, every, every from you know the Ikasi guys down in South Africa to Bitcoin Dada, which is the women's training in Kenya. You know, there's some really cool stuff that's happening. Like, how do they get support too? Um, you know, I think some of that support has to be local, right? Um, I don't think it should all come from outside either. I think local uh, investors and local people who just like this thing are, are need to get behind it and and help it become a you know a, a bigger thing. Uh, that's where you get the organic growth, and that's really what you want. You don't want a manufactured growth around it. Um, but yeah, I think you know, be involved, include them. Uh, you know, like, sure, I can be here uh, in Miami at the Bitcoin conference because you know, as our company, we can just pay for me to buy a plane ticket and go. It's harder for some of these other guys uh, who are building great stuff. They might not have all the same resources, uh, and they definitely have a harder time getting the visa, right? And that's a major that's a major hurdle to overcome. Mm-hmm. But getting getting the uh, and I've seen this where you have guys like KG and from Machinkura, you have, um, I think Marcel from Bitcoin Dada, uh, different people who are going to other places now. And I think one of the best things that you can have is a, is a mixing of the blood where you, where you get to meet people like yourself from other parts of the world and they get to meet you and it, it helps you understand each other. And you actually realize you're not that different from each other, even though you're doing it in a place that I've never been and you're doing another place that I never will go to. And, um, and once you have that, that, 
shared mind about what's going on and you understand each other, you actually get the empathy automatically. And when that, when, when that happens, good things happen to everybody, right? It's like, um, you know, we had this, we had the saying with, uh, you know, in, in our, in our tech space and our group, which you, you put enough, you know, good, smart people together in a room and good things happen. You don't have to manufacture it. It just happens. So how do you get these people from these communities, uh, who are trying to push or build in Bitcoin in Africa with those from the rest of the world? You know, I think Africa Bitcoin conference is a good first step in that direction. But I also think it's important to get the Africans out of Africa just as much as it is to get non-Africans to Africa. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to go. Yep, yeah. We're going to head out there. We'll come and see you. I think we, yeah. I think we're going to try and do Kenya, Nigeria, and I think it's Malawi. People are recommending we go to. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd go under your recommendation. You, you should also take a look at, um, so I think, I mean, the big three are always South Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya. Right. Yeah. Now those are the big economies of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And they have a lot of stuff going on in Bitcoin, just like you would expect. But if you get off the beaten track into Malawi, yes, please. You get to like even a more raw version, which is like it feels like, you know, when I was growing up, that's the Africa I grew up in, right? And it's very different than it's when you're in the when the in the big economies. Have you lived your whole life there? Yeah. I grew up in Sudan and Kenya. Uh, when I was six years old, we moved from Sudan because the uh, I remember the we war got so Sudan. bad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, my boy will tell you this. I like going to the weirdest, strangest. Like my favorite two places I've been to are Venezuela and India, just because it's so wild and different. Yeah. And so when when you say Sudan, I'm like, can we go? <laughs> South Sudan is the Wild West. Yeah. Can we right? go? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we have the we have the contacts in South Sudan to make it uh, as safe as you can be in South Sudan. Yeah. yeah. Is it government in South Sudan? Yeah. Well, dep- well, like it depends where in South Sudan you go, yeah. like who, who's in charge. I've got no context for this. What's happening in South Sudan? So South Sudan uh, got independence from Sudan uh, about just over a decade ago. And as they did, they have just like any new country had their internal fights over who's in charge, how the resources are spent. And so there's currently, um, it always feels like there's currently some type of stress on the system because of that. Right. It's not as bad as, as Sudan proper right now though. Sudan proper is, is in a mess. Is, Is that in like civil war or? Yeah. It's being contested now between generals. Okay. We can't go there. <laughs> I wouldn't go there. Oh, we wouldn't go there. Okay. If I wouldn't go there, you probably shouldn't that's go there. from there wouldn't go there. <laughs> probably shouldn't. Go I'm there. pretty okay with like travel in Africa and to risky situations, and I'm not going to Khartoum right now. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. All right. We'll see if we can change your mind. Okay. So um, one of the things I found also with traveling with this is that the hardest place to explain Bitcoin to is <laughs> like my friends in Bedford. They just don't get it and because they don't have a need for it, really. They, they don't realize they have a need for it. I think they have a need for it. They don't realize it. They're, like, If I went through my eight best friends, I think one of them might have a bit of Bitcoins, definitely got some shit coins, but they don't really have it. And so I've just given up. I don't even talk to them about Bitcoin when I'm home. It's not a conversation that comes up anymore because I bore them. When I went to Argentina or when I was in El Salvador uh, or Venezuela and you talk to people and you talk about what Bitcoin is, they get it. Like the more fuck their currency is, the more they get it. Is that a similar thing in Africa? People understand it a bit more? The concept of what Bitcoin can do for you is not, is something that is appreciated. 
What's interesting about what you just said is that Kenya is probably the least likely to adopt Bitcoin as day-to-day -day use because we have M-Pesa. M-Pesa was one of the first mobile money systems in the world and it's massive. I think it, used, it moves about 20% of the GDP daily. Uh, it's incredibly big. And so everybody has something in their, in their pocket that they can just send money around quite easily. Now it's expensive. There's, there's, you know, there's a fairly large size tax on it. Um, and so the transaction, transaction costs are expensive. Is that a percentage or fixed or mixed? It depends on the, on how much you're moving. Yeah, it's like uh, a tiered fee structure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sending you equivalent of 10 pounds. What do you think I would be paying? About, uh, about 1500. So that, um, you would probably spend about, 20 shillings on that, you know, to move it, what's maybe it, 30. What's that as a percent, do you think? It's about 1%. Yeah, 1% to 3%. Right, okay. Yeah, but the, the, why that? Why that's important, people, again, I, th I, I come across this in Bitcoin circles all the time. They're like, why don't you just use Lightning? Why don't you just do this? You think that's a small transaction fee, right? Because of its relative size to you and your money. When you're talking about an ordinary Kenyan moving that much money, they'd actually rather do it in cash. That one to three percent, those those twenty thirty shillings actually mean something, right? And so for you and I, we're like, yeah, whatever. Just we we kind of forget about that value because it doesn't the, the the speed by which we can do the transaction is more important, the ease of use. Um, but for ordinary people, they would much rather use cash. So when they use M-Pesas for a reason, it's because somebody's across town or they're sending money to their, their, their grandmother up country uh, or they're, they're doing a business transaction that they just have to do it this way anyway. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's useful, but it's also constraining. However, the, the main point is in, in Kenya, we actually really understand it. So when you show somebody Bitcoin and how you can move money on, you know, on the lightning, everybody's like automatically gets it. No problem. You go to some other countries and they don't have the same mobile money systems in place. So if you go into like the DR Congo, right, the the, the DRC, you'll find that, um, you know, you'll find people sitting on the side of the road with stacks of different types of currencies and, and people will come and pay them and that person will send money to somebody else somewhere. It's like there's a lot more friction to how their mobile money works. Now, Kenya, we have a monopoly with one of our mobile carriers, and that's why it works so well is because everybody's on the same network, has the same SIM cards, and so can do that. Um, you know, so it, this is why it's really important to understand how, bal how balkanized Africa is uh, in, its, in its use of technology and its economies. Not everything is the same. You can't paint it with one broad brush. You actually have to think of them as different places and have their own rules, have their own uses of technology, have their own like the, the way that the society works in one country is very different than the one across the border, uh, or it can be. Do people outside of Kenya or can people outside of Kenya use M-Pesa? Has it leaked into other countries? So M-Pesa has moved into a couple other countries. Okay. Uh, it has not had the same success. Uh, it has some success, but not the same success. So you can use it in Tanzania, you can use it in South Africa. I think Ethiopia just gave a license for it, which is a switch. That's crazy because Ethiopia has never allowed that kind of stuff before. Um, and, and, but they don't necessarily, that in PESA and Tanzania won't necessarily transact to South Africa. So you can't necessarily do it across borders. This show is brought to you by Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. 
and Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledin a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up today, we have the Human Trafficking Institute. Now, according to the International Labour Organization, there are approximately 49.6 million human trafficking victims in the world today. And in May last year, I spoke to Victor Boutris from the Human Trafficking Institute, which has a unique and proven model I want to tell you about. Now, the Human Trafficking Institute exists to decimate modern-day slavery at its source by empowering police and prosecutors to stop traffickers. They work inside criminal justice systems in Uganda and Belize and provide the embedded experts with world-class training, investigative resources and evidence-based research necessary to free victims. Since the Human Trafficking Institute began their work in Uganda and Belize, they've helped their partners to free over 2,300 victims of trafficking and arrest over 1,500 suspected traffickers. In Uganda, there was a 417% increase in successful prosecutions of human traffickers within the first two years of their work there. Now, the work they do is incredible, and it's something I want to get behind as a support, so I want to tell you about it today, and hopefully you can support it too. I've given them a Bitcoin. Hopefully you can make a donation too, because Bitcoiners have the potential to make an incredible impact by donating to them. So please do visit traffickinginstitute.org forward slash Bitcoin to learn more about what they do and help fight against human trafficking. Next up, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us, so they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Does each country have its own currency, or can you use some currency? Yeah, every, every country has its own currency. But can you go into one country and use the other currency? Will people take it? Right around the borders, yes, because yeah. they're used to being able to do the, the transfer between the two, but most of the time, no. All right. Okay. Listen, let's talk about Gridless again. I know we've covered this before. <laughs> uh, it's a very cool project. By the way, did you get as miners that I saw? Yeah. yeah. They uh, arrive on May 23rd. I saw some of your miners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have a big load coming in. Um, 
in a couple weeks' time. We're very excited about. So okay. the ones you saw are on a container now. Nice. So um, let's remind everyone because uh, not everyone would listen to the last show, although they should. Uh, let's talk about Gridless, let's talk about what you're doing, what the project is, and how the progress is. So just start by explaining what Gridless is, what, are you, what you're trying to do with this. So Gridless uses uh, renewable energy uh, at small mini-grid sites across Africa to mine Bitcoin. And the reason we do that is it pushes the edges of electrification out further, so it makes sense for mini-grids to operate. And number two, it's because there is very little, if any, uh, interconnects between grids, so those energy partners don't have anybody else to sell to. Uh, so we can come in as a buyer of last resort and help them you know, have a fully functioning site as well as make money ourselves or make Bitcoin ourselves. Um, and, the, and the second part of what we do is really because, you know, there's not a lot of hash power on the continent. And so pushing more hash power into the continent helps decentralize the network. And we think that's good for Bitcoin. Have you, you've seen these, one of these mines operationally? Yep, multiple. It, and, and they essentially the same as the ones I saw when I went out and made my film? Nope. They're different. <laughs> what, what's, what's different? Um, it is the best chicken shack mine you've ever seen. So it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's how every good miner starts. Ragtag, you know, scrappy. They co-locate right on top of the turbine that's providing power. Wow. Literally in the same little shack that the turbine's in. Right, so explain these mini-grids then. So um, mini-grids are typically under one megawatt. Uh, what they're doing is you have a power development company that's saying, we think there's enough density in a community out here for us to build power and sell it to them. So they come and they look, and we, we typically go to hydro, but you know most of the mini-grids in Africa are actually solar, okay. uh, which don't make as much sense for Bitcoin mining. So we, we just work with the hydro ones right now. So you go to a hydro site, and, um, and they've already built something that's maybe 50 kilowatts or 500 kilowatts. Could be anywhere. And it's a private company. It's, a private, it's, it's yeah, not it's a nationalized thing. Right. Okay. It could be a community effort, uh, like we have in Malawi. And um, they've built this already, and they've started running power cables to the houses and those houses pay for their electricity to this private company. And um, usually what happens is they have to overbuild. So they're, they're thinking about what will the use, what will the usage of this energy be like in five to 10 years from this community? Let's build for that because it's expensive to do the build. And uh, so they build for it, but then the uptake by the community is very, very slow. So, you know, first you start with your LED light bulb and then you maybe charge a, a telephone um, is it because they don't own electrical devices? Yeah, they don't own them at first. Yeah. Or they might own the smartphone, and they're, they're charging that off of a, a car battery right now. There's people who run services in the village who just charge phones off of car batteries, right? But as soon as electricity comes in, you can charge your own. Uh, you maybe will buy a hot plate to start cooking on. You'll buy a TV, maybe a refrigerator to, cool, to keep your produce for longer. All these things happen, but they take years. And so over the next five to 10 years, they'll maybe get up to the full usage of that powerhouse that was built. So it was 50 or 500 kilowatts. Now it's a full capacity. But what do you do as a, as a, as a mini grid developer, as a power developer between those times? You've got this massive excess of energy that you're just dumping as heat. You're just dissipating. There's nothing to do with it, right? So uh, there's no other, there's nobody else who's buying it from you. There's no businesses locally who are going to get it from you. So you know, we come along. We say, hey, listen, we'll take out the rest of that, and uh, we'll do a deal with you. It's a rev share. 
So you take Bitcoin. And a lot of times we have to do some education on what Bitcoin is. And then they have to be convinced of it. The great thing is that everything's better than zero, which is what they're getting today. So they can say, okay, fine, we'll take Bitcoin and we'll sell it right away. We can show them how to do that uh, or we can hold it and hope it goes up. Do you make them take Bitcoin though? You don't just sell it to them, sell it and give them- We help them set up wallets. uh, But you don't sell it for them and just give them the money? No. So you're 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 force um, orange pill. Yeah, you're force orange pill. Because <laughs> it just takes one. Yeah. They're like the best drug dealers, right? It's like the first one's free, right? And then they have to do it again because they're monetizing otherwise unused power. Did which, you did you get to meet any of these people? Yeah, I did. It's a very diverse gang. The one that the 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 few that I met, they ranged in diversity and background. Like the first shop that we met, the CEOs from Belgium. A CTO learned how to generate power by taking an alternator off a car and sticking it on a bike and shoving it in a river. Uh, (laughs) The financiers, French. And then we met guys who are much bigger and financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. So the breadth and scope of these people is very diverse, but they all get it. So there's a lot of international companies coming in to invest. These aren't... So, yeah. So I'm actually putting out probably this week uh, like a primer on how do you... How does mini grid energy and Bitcoin mining work in Africa? Uh, so alongside the rest of the, the, the Green Africa Mining Alliance, the, the Gamma crew, we put together this document and it really explains what the problem is. Um, so how do you get finance to build a mini grid? when that mini grid is not financially sustainable? And everybody knows it's not going to be financially sustainable. Well, why would you do it in the first place? You have to actually I mean, go back. It could be part altruistic. So that's right. So where does the money come from right now? It's concessionary, right? It's generally a foundation or it's one of the large DFIs, your USAIDs, or maybe an African development bank or some European foundation or, or um, like UKA doesn't exist anymore, but like that. And, um, and the problem with that is that, you know, you're building, you're building businesses. Uh, let, me, let me actually go back a step. Why are you building that? Why are you building that powerhouse? Because you know the only way to push electrification further in Africa is through mini grids. The national grid won't go there. The density isn't enough. They're not going to get their ROI in time. So everybody knows it's, it doesn't make sense, right? Why are they doing that in Africa too? Well, because of the 1.1 billion people without access to electricity, 600 million of them live in Africa. So if you actually want to push human progress forward, we have to start with energy. And, and to do that, we have to put, the, put this further and further out there. So yet everything that we've seen for the last 20 years in mini grids is that they're not sustainable. So who's going to fund non-sustainable stuff? Foundations and DFIs. That was the first thing. After I did the tour, I started talking with the, with the guys and I thought a whole vertical for my family office was, why don't we just do our own financing for these projects? Because the big thing that the, the, the guys at the one they're partnered with called Hydrobox, he said... They have identified 60 megawatts that they could build out, but the only way they can get financing is from European banks, and they have to have a huge anchor tenant, and it's just like, tenant. it's like a big tea drying house or a coffee place that that's a large user, and the interest rates on their loans are like 18, 20 percent. I was like, oh my god, it's like Terra Luna level, it's crazy. Yeah. And so I thought, well, if if you're a Bitcoin miner, and you understand the mining and you do lending as a side thing, you can actually ensure you get paid back because you do a a covenant in the contract that says that you get a portion of the power until it's needed by the community. 
Hmm. So you can fi- self-finance your own projects for these other people. And the the backlog of projects they have is, and this is just one small company, 60 megawatts that they like basically already have permits for. They're just waiting for financing. So there's a business case for you to do this. Huge. So this, I think, was why Bitcoin mining, which we didn't realize at the time when we were really starting the company, is the silver bullet for. It comes in and it fills this, like this, this last little gap that makes mini grids sustainable. There actually can be a financially sustainable company now. And that's why there's not a single small power development company that we've talked to that hadn't said, oh, could you come work with us? Everybody needs it. Everybody knows they need it. The, the interesting thing is the, fi- you know, the, the financing around this can take three to five years to get. So even once you've found a site, like Marshall's saying, you found these 60 megawatts worth of sites, you can't necessarily get the funding quickly. It'll take another two, three, four years, and then you'll break ground and you'll build. There's no reason for that anymore. There, there's a new way to think about this. There's a new paradigm for energy in Africa, I think now, which is you, you bundle the mini grids and the Bitcoin mining together and you get your return on investment in seven years instead of 20. And, or if ever, because they weren't sustainable. Right, okay. And so this is, this is essentially what Gridless is doing. And I know you obviously- Well, well we're not doing that yet, right? We're just well, Bitcoin mining. So we we haven't financed the development of of new mini grids. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry, but you're supporting the mini grids. So you've got that relationship, but you can partner up with these companies to build the business case. Or do you think you're eventually going to do the whole package? I, I don't know yet. Okay, uh, I, I think in our future right now, it's just <laughs> growing our base of mini grids uh, operations and doing mining there. I think there's a future that does make sense or could make sense where we get involved with the financing and equity ownership of some of that power because it gives us some longevity uh, on mining. And the way I'm reading the tea leaves right now is that energy companies in the future will will be the ones who are mining, uh, not independent mining operations. And so it makes sense if you're trying to play into the future that you own some of that energy so that you can maintain your mining position. Well, you see that, though, don't you? That convergent of energy and mining companies. Absolutely. So that was when they when we finished our first tour, I pulled the, the Hydrobox guys aside and I said, is there an interest to do that? And I kind of pitched just like a, a rubric of what that would look like for like my family office to finance a build. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we would sign that deal tomorrow. So um, for a Westerner doing business in Africa, I, I'm a little bit uneducated, but absolutely. Like it's... it on the surface, at least seems to be a no-brainer. Hmm. I mean, I wonder how far we're off that in UK, US. Is anyone actually, do we know if anyone's doing that? But was it, wasn't there a company in Australia who said they were going to start mining? There are a few I, in the States. There are. Yeah. But the problem is they have an alternative by selling to the marketplace that is the grid. So we in the UK have this, how much is it being curtailed, curtailed in the UK? Oh, there's a huge amount of wind curtailed every it's day. It's unbelievable. Yeah, so the, in Texas specifically, there's a lot of curtailment too. Uh, however, that's a whole nother, it seems parallel, but they're different because they're only curtailing because the price is going negative. And so they're stopping the turbines because they're not making any money. So that's not happening in the UK. What's happening in the UK is two things. Sometimes the grid can't take all the energy that's being created. Uh-huh. Secondly, sometimes they haven't got the transmission line set uh-huh. up. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm in my head. I'm thinking it's tens of millions. No, well, last year, two hundred million was curtailed. Two hundred million, million was curtailed. Two hundred million megawatt hours or no, pounds. pounds. I don't know what that would be. I'll try and find. And I guarantee you, if I went to it's these twenty gigawatts, if I had to guess, if hmm. I went to these companies and I said, "Hey, can I buy that off you?" I don't know what you're selling that. Here's the problem. So we go. sorry, curtailed wind thirty three gigawatts. So the problem that I've faced in Texas doing these kinds of deals. And I've gotten very close to doing some deals with large wind providers is they aren't to the point where it's a aligned business model. So they'll say, yes, you can take it from us. We want a floor price of call it 0.02 cents, which is seemingly free. However, when the price goes up on the real-time marketplace, you have to pay that price. So my response as a miner is why would I ever do that when instead of being inside your fence, to get that deal, I could just build on the outside and then I get to take advantage of negative pricing. Mm-hmm. So right now for a miner, it doesn't make sense because they have an alternative and I also have an alternative. But you also have a free market for energy That's pricing right. in Texas. That's right. And and most places there is some marketplace whether that's exporting to a different country or whatever. But the reason it works so easily and the pitches are very, it's five minutes, is because there is no alternative. I'm telling you, if I went to one of these companies in the UK and said, that, uh, that 200 million that you're curtailing, I'll buy it from you. Look, I'm going to buy it at a low rate, mm-hmm. but I'll buy it from you. I'll buy all of it. They're going to, I can imagine they're going to be very and what interested. What if I told you? And then yeah, I was, yeah, go ahead. And they get turn around and go, "What are you using it for?" And I was like, "I'm oh, just a data center, uh-huh. but I need the data center." It's like, "Well, what is that data center? I'm mining Bitcoin." They're going to go, "Nope." Yep. So they don't know why they're saying no, but they're saying right. no. Well, your capex will be upside too. Well, it'll be different because yeah. you will have to curtail when the grid needs it or the price is higher than what you're willing to pay. Well, so but there's a bigger issue here in the UK. Is the main issue is see if you can find this, Danny that they've got an issue with the transmission line. So Yeah, the congestion. U- yeah, so UK has got this net zero target, which we don't need to get into the mm. net zero's bullshit thing. I don't think it entirely is, but we don't need mm. to get into that. But the point is, is that they are, they are able to build out the turbines and that part of the infrastructure. The grid cannot take it, and they think they're 15 years behind. Okay? Mm. Now... That is one. It's energy going to waste, but and um, it's an investment thing, by the way. Right. This also could give them investment to build those transmission lines. Mm. You found find it? I, no, I've not. I don't know exactly. Like, what would be the issue there? What is the issue? S- search for um, congestion. Yeah, no. Search for uh, UK wind turbine transmission. Fifteen years or something. So we have a similar problem in West Texas. Yeah. Where there's ton of generation, but not a lot of transmission. And the, there's not a lot of people are immediately around there to consume the energy. So you need long-term transmission and distribution. That's just like really big capex that they're just not willing to do. It's the same problem in the UK. Yeah. They, they just And the government don't really want to pay for it. They want private companies to do it. Mm-hmm. They will subsidize them, but there just aren't enough doing it. Right. So, I mean, it just says there's an issue and they're working on it. There's not a lot of detail. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure I saw this like a 15 year delay mm-hmm. just on transmission alone. So, it's a good bear market project for sure because the price of mining machines is lower in a bear market. Yep. So, I mean, you could you could make a case for sure if you can get the deal. If they right. would agree to it. If you I don't think deal. I'm going to become a miner. <laughs> yeah. It's not my business. I'll be like Marshall, <laughs> finding these guys. Well, that's um, how I found out about Gridless, actually. Our common friend, Obi. Ah. He at this conference last year, he's like, Man, I think I want to get into mining. And I'm like, that 
pretty sure you don't. <laughs> so no, I could set one up in Portugal and it would be like a, you know, a cool thing. I said, you should come to Houston, see what it's like. He came and he saw what you saw and he was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. Mm. And then he said, maybe I'll try to find a project that we can both invest in. I was like, okay, good luck. Mostly everybody's a clown. Calls me two weeks later from Norway. He's like, hey, I got this guy. I'm like, yeah, everybody's got a guy, right? And then he said, can you jump on a Zoom? Get on a Zoom, see this guy and Obi on a cell phone on a park bench somewhere in Norway. And they start telling me the story. And I thought, oh, this is seemingly interesting. Have you ever mined before? He said, nope. I said, okay. So strike one. Yeah. <laughs> I said, what about the internet? Because that's, that's the thing I don't know. He said, well, I helped build half the internet in Africa. It's like, well, okay, we're getting somewhere. And then I went down and saw that it wasn't a dog and pony show of any kind. It was for real. So that's uh, that's kind of what things kicked it off. Interesting side point. I just found out that the government, uh, the council of Bedford has one of the biggest solar farms in the UK. It's owned by our local council and the grid can't take everything they're providing. Sounds like gridless chapter Bedford, dude. Yeah. <laughs> gridless Bedford. We'll get you into Bedford. Okay, so in terms of the business model, um, what? It, how cheap is energy in Africa? Is it re is it re relatively cheap? It's relatively expensive. Relative to them, but relative. I mean, for so for, for people living there. So there's a wide variance across countries. Let me start there. Okay. Um, in the countries we operate in, if you are a consumer paying consumer prices, it can get fairly expensive. You're paying twenty five cents plus tax uh, per kilowatt. Dollar twenty five cents. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's so that's more than the UK. Oh yeah, it's more than the US. Almost anywhere in the US. It's almost it's more than almost anywhere I've seen. And that's because there's not enough demand for them to build out the supply. Well, this is national grid. Okay. Uh, it's just expensive. Right. And so that's um, like if you live in a big city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about on these mini grids? So on the mini grids, it's also fairly expensive. And the reason why it's been fairly expensive is because their levelized cost of electricity, which is the algorithm that's used to figure out how much people should, how much it costs to build this, and then how much will it take to pay it off over the next 25 years. And so, you know, people, I, we've seen some mini grids where they're charging 90 cents. But how can people afford it? They can't. So, or they, they can only afford very little. And so they'll just have an LED light bulb and charge with their phone. Right, but you'll never get the uptake of all the other things that electricity can provide for you at those levels because you're talking about people with less disposable income. Yeah, and you know because way out in the rural parts have less disposable income than the the urban parts of Africa. So the the high price on the mini grids makes sense, but why is it so expensive at the national grid level? Inefficiencies mostly, and the distribution. It mostly comes from distribution. So the utility itself depends on the country is. In Kenya, it's separated from the power generation. Mm -hmm. Distribution is a different company. Right. And so they, they deal with that. And it's not always uh, well run. Yeah. In other countries like Malawi, uh, the power generation and the, and the power utility are combined. And it actually is a little bit cheaper, but it only gets a little bit cheaper because in Kenya, as well as in, in uh, Malawi, there's subsidization that's happening. Right. Um, it's a, it's a problem, right? It's already very expensive for energy. If you're a company uh, running an industrial site, you'll get the energy for a, a little less, of course. And um, 
And then what we do though, and why we, why we can make the numbers work is yeah, first my of all, next question. We, we're going into places that have their mini grid. They're, con- they're not connected to the rest of the grid. They cannot sell to anybody else. So when we walk in, we are literally their buyer of last resort. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up today, we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also today, we have Unchained. Now, events, exchanges, and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and I've now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step-by-step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. And it's a rev share, so you're not really paying for the energy. We're not paying a floor price. You're just saying, give us the energy and whatever we mine, we'll give you a percentage back. Yes, that's correct. They get a percentage of it. They get to see that. It's very transparent. Who you know, Who's making how much at any given time. Our incentives are aligned now. They want to see this working. So as soon as power goes up and we, if we haven't spooled up a bunch of miners, they're like, hey, how come you haven't turned those miners on? And, uh, and so we're, we're, you know, that actually has made the relationship very healthy. We had this really bad drought, like a 40 year low, uh, in, in, in rainwater. And, uh, it was really tough for the first four months of this year at one of our sites in Kenya. And, you know, so we're there saying, well, we know you can't turn any more energy on cause there's no more water that you can use to, to move the turbine. So we'll just sit here patiently and wait cause we're, we're, you know, we're partners with you on this. 
the rains come and it's just cranking and they're like, all right, can you turn those miners on now? You know? And we're like, okay. And, and, you know, we're saying, but we'd move some of them. Like we had, we had, we had moved some to Nigeria, some down to Malawi, some to different places. And we're like, okay, it'll take us a few weeks before we have some more in town. They're like, okay, the incentives are aligned. They can be understanding of us. We can be understanding of them, but we're both looking for the same thing, which is max usage of this energy. And of course, we always play last fiddle to everybody else. So if anybody in the community is trying to use that power, whether it's a, a maze mill or a, an, an individual at their home, they always get the energy first and we auto curtail uh, our miners depending on who's who's using it. And, um, and that's that the best actually, part about being in the turbine house. You can see it slowing down in real time and mm. turn your machines down. Yeah. And that's where, that's where like Philip, um, my business partner is like, he's a smart guy. He's written some really good code. Um, you know, he and Marshall have been looking at stuff together to help make that even that buffer even faster. It's, uh, it's actually one of the mo more interesting parts of what we do. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun for people who are hardware and software guys to, f to solve that problem and, uh, and see the real business case of it in real time. I was just, so you presume, well, you make these companies more profitable they could probably say pass that saving on to the consumers, but do they actually do that? They do sometimes. So we can't force that. Yeah. But yeah, in like in Kenya, that's what's happened is there's a lower cost of power in the community because they've now been able to, you know, that that company who runs it, they're they're more empathetic to the their own customers in the yeah. grid. And so they're willing to do that. Option, so they could keep it the same, presumably. They could. Uh, like in Malawi, what happened is they were finally then able to buy power meters to because they weren't financially sustainable. They couldn't even buy power meters to turn on more families who wanted power. And so we came in there. They're now able to buy it for 200 more families. 200 more families are connected actually in the last three and a half months. And then uh, the other thing that had happened is one of their turbines had gone down. They have three powerhouses, one, uh, you know, 50, 50, and I think 100 kilowatts each. So the 50 kilowatt, one of the 50 kilowatt powerhouses had gone down a year ago. So they were now able to fix it. And so now they had more power for the whole community to use. There's a backlog of 800 families who want energy, 200 of them already on, and the other 600 will be on soon. That's cool. Yeah. So there's different there's different community benefits that come from this, and this is this is my sticking point with anybody who talks about this as like, oh yeah, well Bitcoin energy Bitcoin uses too much energy. Like, well, it uses a lot of energy. Uh, too much is its own tell mm -hmm. on your moral stance on what energy should be used for, right? Yeah. But you know, like. The fact that it pushes electricity out to more homes at a lower price, or possibly lower price, uh, into these rural communities, that's a net positive. And we'll always have a disagreement. If you think that some kid in some village being able to study later at night uh, or who won't have you know respiratory illnesses because he didn't grow up on lamp smoke is more important is or is less important than your moral stance on what bitcoin should be what energy should be used for they're just objectively wrong well uh, you know i would say that because it's you know it's about we have we can't forget that there's humans involved here and human progress is important mm -hmm. and um and you know when you have a moral stance sitting in your ivory tower in the west about how energy should be used you know you are losing context for why energy is there at all it goes back to that uh glassstein point of check your financial privilege or check your just check your privilege and this is why that guy like alex defreeze pisses me off or this conversation we had in houston where i was like i mean the central 
character to my film was Elizabeth Warren because what I kept thinking about is I don't think you understand the second-order consequences of what you're doing when you are attacking Bitcoin. You're attacking these kind of projects as well. You know, you're attacking us as Bitcoiners. I'm not just going to pretend I, I I'm just care about your project, but I'm saying you're attacking all of us. But let's actually look at these amazing projects that are happening that you're that you're causing problems for. Well, the, the thing that you know what we're talking about is that people are taking either political or moral stances on things for their own personal gain, uh, their own personal benefits, and they don't have the full context or they don't care about the full context of what that technology does. And so there's a there's a, a level of intellectual dishonesty at play, and it's it's easy to see. And I think there's also like, it, it's easy to say like, oh, miners aren't helping the grid or whatever kind of stateside arguments we have. You know, you've seen the mm-hmm. curtailment stuff in Texas, but if you want to put that in practice in a place that's never had that kind of stuff, you could see the real impact where it has on people. How do they pay their bills? Do they receive a bill through the post? Do they, or is it metered and they pay in advance? How's yeah, it? it's metered and prepaid. Prepaid. Uh, so somebody will go and, and they'll they'll get a you know they'll they'll pay a hundred shillings or you know three hundred kwacha uh, for this much energy, and as soon as they've used that much, it, their meter turns off the power. Okay. And in terms of uh, usage, when you've seen one of these mini grids go into one of these villages, is it, is it, do you literally see like a change to the village? Has it become like a whole exciting thing? Is it, is it total game changes? Suddenly lights are on in the evening, the village doesn't close down. Help me understand. When the, when the sun goes down in Africa, it can get very dark very quickly and the world becomes very small. So when you have energy and people have electricity at their homes, lights come on. People go to the, the shop because that shop has power and the, they all hang out there. Uh, they go to their local pub and, you know, they, they have a different, it's just a completely different feel. You have more security. It's a, a big deal, actually. There's much more security when you have electricity. Uh, you know, education gets better. Healthcare improves. Did you know that there's 50,000 clinics and hospitals across Africa where people can't get there within 50 minutes that don't have electricity? You know, that's the kind of thing people don't know about, right? And it's, it's big. I mean, and that affects, I think, something like 280 million Africans. Just that access to clinics with electricity. Right. That's a, that's a crazy number. Right. And um, so having energy in your village has a, an incredible effect. And that's not even counting the economic effect. What does it do for businesses, mm. which is another level. Right. Which I, which I get excited about. Like I, I grew up in Africa, so, you know, I'm not a big fan of the NGO world and, and, and the kind of grant money subsidization that happens. I'm a fan of businesses and what happens when businesses move in and people are getting wealthier because they're doing something that has long-term economic value. And, you know, if we really want to change the, the economic trajectory of Africa, we have to talk about businesses and wealth generation. How many, how many grids have you got operational now? So we have uh, the one in Kenya. Um, we have the one in Malawi. We'll have another one in Zambia in two months' time. I'm really excited about. Great. Uh, and then we have the partnership we did in Nigeria with um, with um, 
Siambola, who's uh, one of the, um, he's, he was mining on his own and he had some extra power. So we sent him some, uh, some miners as well that we do a, a rev share with him on. And, uh, and we have, we have a couple other sites that are on the horizon for this next uh, nine months. And with these grid operators, do you go through a moment with them where there's like an initial skepticism when they receive that first kind of Bitcoin check as such? <laughs> They're like, well, shit, we just got this. Yeah, this is real money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's the realization that it's real money and it's a real business customer. And they become proper Bitcoiners at that moment. Well, or they become believers in our in our Bitcoin data center at the very least. You know, that's the the the, the bare minimum. But yeah, that's the foot in the door for the orange. Yeah, bill. yeah, that's their yeah. that's their silk road. Leadership on the company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leadership on the company is like, oh, okay, and and you can see the kind of the the shift. I know you've raised money. What's what's holding you guys back? Rolling out hundreds of these sites. Well, we had a very uh, wise advisor who told us, build slowly, make sure you really know how it's going. That's also Africa. You don't want to go big right away. Uh, you want to st make sure you really understand the intricacies of what you're doing. So we've been going slowly on purpose. And um, we'll, we'll probably, like, I'd like to get to, you know, 10 megawatts by the end of the year, maybe earlier. Um, but we're not going to grow massively right away. Make sure we understand. Because if you doing. do it wrong and all it takes is for you to burn one grid operator, yeah, he'll tell all his buddies and you're out of business. So for context, 10 megawatts, I've seen your, what you've got at your yeah, place. That's two. That's two. So it's about five times that. That's yeah. your target. Okay. Yeah. But you've got that in one location. Industrial miners, like I've been to Riot and I've seen mm. the Iris facilities. I've seen a lot of these facilities now. These are big facilities that have a lot of economies of scale have been in one location. You're like a decentralized network of these. How many ASICs do you tend to have on a site? I know it'll range, but... Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have um, between 20 and 200 on a site. So it's not big. There's something about horizontal scale versus vertical scale. Like yeah. you're, you're talking about vertical scale when you have these big sites, yeah. warehouses full of miners. And it gives you a ton of efficiency, but your resiliency decreases. That's right. So huh. there's something valuable in having a horizontal scale where you might have 15 different sites. Uh, now, you will not have the efficiencies. You have to, to manage those 15 sites. Takes more people or more time. But watch or, this summer. As the Texas curtailment season comes on, watch the network hash rate. It'll go up and down and up and down because there's so much concentration in Texas. How much of the hash rate is in Texas now? I think the Texas Blockchain Council puts it at like 15%, 20% maybe. Global hash rate. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. It's a lot. But it's not as resilient because it's all in one place and it's a free market and there are opportunities elsewhere to capture upside. What would that mean for block production? Would it have any? I think you'll see the difficulty chop sideways this summer. Chop, okay, yeah. okay. But in Africa, it it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. So if we talk about, so let's just shift to that for a moment. Um, there has been a bit of criticism pushback within Texas, mm -hmm. but it seems to be the pushback is coming from people who who aren't in Texas sometimes. But I know some within. What's the is, is, the, is the story being told of Texas and Bitcoin by Bitcoin is being told honestly? Uh, I think the curtailment story is an interesting one, but there's levels of curtailment. There are some miners who do it very well, some miners who do it very poorly. If you do curtailment poorly, it's a net negative. Why is that? 
if you if actually well, how would you do it poorly first of all if you don't have the right uh, software to either read when the grid, grid needs it or be able to tell your machines to turn off in a fast enough time right. or during the right time window those are if you miss it then maybe you turn off the mine when the grid actually needs you to be on but that shouldn't be surely there's an interest in miners sharing this information and so surely the ones who are shit at it should be talking to the ones good at it and saying it's a lot of pride <laughs> really a lot of pride uh, as far as like the curtailment side of it as far as like operational it used to be very secretive like 2012 2013 when a big site was five megawatts you know you don't know where it is you don't tell anybody how much you pay all that's different now and now the curtailment piece is is much more kind of like guarded anybody can come to my mine our big mine right anybody can come check it out and just like the iris guys they'll, they'll have anybody out but when you ask them like hey can you show me the source code for how you control your mines if it's built by them no chance because that's the secret sauce that everybody's competing on now. Right. Okay. Um, so during the season, is there both a chance that there will be a good story told and potentially a bad story told? I don't think there'll be a bad story because it's not enough of the Texas grid right. to have a catastrophic impact. Right. Which, if it did happen, that would be disastrous. PR. Oh, sure. We would be shut down instantly. But there's a chance of a very good story to be told. I can tell you that during the last winter storm, had miners not been there, we would have been blackout. Huh. And ERCOT has that data. ERCOT has the data for every single Texas miner. They talk to the miners. They say, hey, you guys were good at curtailing. They have a ranking, actually, of who's good at it, who's bad at it. Everybody's helping the bad people get better. But at the top, nobody's like sharing. Like if you're first and I'm second, no way you're talking to me. So there's a real need for what's happening there in Texas to to also happen in other states and also happen in other countries. Yeah. Because we don't want too big a concentration. That's right. Yeah. So a good story would be useful. Mm -hmm. We need it to happen in the UK. I mean. How much mining happens in the UK? Very little. I, I would assume there's no industrial mining and there may be some home miners. I know there's some stuff in like Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah. yeah. We know those guys. Like digesters and stuff. I always get the name wrong. Skilling. Yeah. 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 But it's just energy so expensive. That's right. It's so expensive. But there should be some mining done with the curtailment. Somebody should be doing something there. It's, it's fairly easy. You just plop a container next to a turbine and hook it up. We know that. The problem mm -hmm. is, is the skepticism. From uh, from people in the UK with regards to things like Bitcoin, it's. Uh, I don't actually know who owns that power as well. Who owns the wind power? Hmm, yeah, is it is it privatized or is it? I'm not sure. Yeah, the, I mean, the industry is privatized. Okay. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of subsidies that go into the build out. Uh -huh. A lot of. I mean, we have. A, is it like fifty percent of the UK's power is now wind? I mean, it obviously fluctuates, but it gets up as high as like. 65 percent is wind yeah, well like right now it's pretty low but i guess it's late on now so but wind's 20 percent as of right this minute yeah we're, and we're probably i can imagine the weather is pretty mild at the moment yeah and it's late in the day so mm -hmm. yeah yeah interesting interesting um is there any part of this i've not asked you about yet that we you wish we'd have covered do lions make good security guards <laughs> 
Well, actually, how do you how do you operate the security with a distributor site like this and repairs in multiple countries? Are you training someone locally to fix ASICs? So we we are always on site with the with the power company. So okay. we have their security as well. Okay. And then yes, we do train somebody locally for first level repairs, um, for for larger more more complicated things. We'll we'll you know we have guys in Nairobi who. It's often us. It will fly. The next time we fly down there, we'll fix something. But and, and this business scales well. Yeah. No, it does. It does because we have advantages that a lot of the Bitcoin miners uh, elsewhere don't have, which is we have isolated powerhouses and we have uh, the ability to do revenue share instead of paying a floor price. And each site, when they get up to full capacity usage. Would that mean you'll be removing ASICs, or do you still think you'll be operational just at night? Sorry, what were you... So you, you talked about earlier, they build out for the future use, and it takes some time to build up. But over that period, do you have to consider, once it does get to full usage, will you be moving out of those sites? Yeah, we have to have we have to know that there's somewhere else we can move those miners to. Now, yeah. that's a couple of years from now. Well, and they're uh, nimble, too, because they can tune them to be use less power on the road to having to move them. So it's not just like overnight, they can see it coming. Yeah, the software, to, uh, just we only use what's miners. We don't use uh, any of the Bitmain uh, machines because they're hardier. Um, oh, by the way, uh, well, so what we what, what March was just saying is we can tune them to be running on a lower efficiency or mode, which means less power usage. So instead of 3.4, it takes 2.7, right, uh, to run it. And actually it's, it's not, it doesn't really affect our it, it affects us, but our profitability doesn't go down that much. Right, right? Okay. so we can run it that way. No, but uh, the reason we, we love what's miners, and then this was actually Marshall was the one who told us to go this way, and thank God he did. These things can take a beating. So we, you know, when the rains come in Africa, you get flying ants, right? So it's the termites, they have wings, they fly around. And if you have lights on, they just flock to it. And it's just, it'll, it'll block out the lights. And, um, <laughs> one of our containers, uh, we did uh, we did not have a filter on one of the intakes, and somebody had left the light on at night in it, and we were like, "Why are miners going down to like sixty percent efficiency of, what, of their normal hundred <laughs> percent?" We get there, we start cleaning them out, we pull off the fans, and there is just it's full of bug guts. Oh. Just completely suicide mites. Oh my gosh! The stuff you find inside of miners is great. I've seen birds, all kinds of stuff. But, really? they, but they're still running. What's miners are amazing, so we love them, and uh, they they have proved themselves already to us. <laughs> all right. Um, oh, is there a heat issue? Because you're already in a hot place. No. So. Everybody thinks Africa is hot. It depends where you are in Africa. Yeah. So if we were in the northern desert of Kenya, yeah, we would we would have more issues. But in the highlands of 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 Kenya or the you know the mountains of Malawi, we are not having an issue. We got to get out of there. We got to get out of there. All <laughs> right. Before we finish, uh, how's consensus? Consensus is a very good conference run by very cool people. <laughs> I can't believe they went to Texas. It didn't make sense to me. I think uh, it makes sen more sense now. Because miners are here. Look, it never was cool to be a miner, except for like the past two years. And now it's like the cool thing to do. It was never cool to go to consensus. <laughs> <laughs> consensus in New York was always, everybody used to come. But it was I a think, good party. Yeah. 
But now I think Bailey's done a really good job. Uh, he is now, as I've told him many times, the conference king. So he consensus, I think it. he's he's crushing it, and he deserves the success he's had. Mm. Young grinder, Bailey's the man. I just remember that consensus. I think it was nineteen. With the lift doors. Oh, yeah. They, uh, they had Justin's face Justin's on it. Surf. So they would clo- uh, close and yeah. it would be just a just big Justin's, Justin's face. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, how Bitcoiny was it and how shitcoiny was it? Uh, it was uh, very shitcoiny. A lot of bankers, which yeah. was interesting, talking about their own whatever the fuck a private side chain is. I have no idea. Just shilling their own databases, I guess. I'm not sure. Shilling uh, uh, databases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> All right, man. Well, look, Shield Gridless, what do you need? Who do you need it from? Give it a shout out. Yeah, I think for Gridless going forward, we will be talking to, we'll be looking at our next round of financing, what we're going to do there. Um, like we talked about earlier, we're thinking about what does it take to play a part in the equity ownership of the energy side too. So we're we're interested in talking to people who are on the energy side and, um seeing what it could look like if we went into these same mini grids and said, instead of building 500 kilowatts, why don't we build 1.5 together? Okay. Um, what about the massive hydro dams that exist in Africa? Have you considered even doing anything there? We have talked to a couple of the really like super, yeah. super ones. Um, and, you know, maybe it's not our lowest hanging fruit, to be honest, uh, but I didn't know potential. if that would be a, just a good revenue source to finance everything else. Maybe. Uh, so, that, you know, a lot of the large miners, not a lot, a number of the large miners have been talking to the people in Ethiopia. Um, and, you know, they have a couple gigawatts spare. And um, but the government is the government and they are trying to figure out how do they take their pound of flesh through this. And they're very, very bureaucratic in in, in Ethiopia. So we'll see if anything moves forward there. Um Uganda is interesting. Uh, there's some parts in Southern Africa, like Zambia and Zimbabwe, that might be interesting. But, uh, you know, we, we think it's easier to work with independent power producers, mm-hmm. uh, private companies instead of governments. Of course. And uh, so we would, we, we tend to tend to use more of our energy to work on those deals than the, uh, the large government ones. All right. Well, look, anyone listening, go and check out Gridless. Love what you're doing, man. We're going to come out and see you. I don't know when it'll be, but we're going to come out this year. You guys are welcome. And yeah. you know, we'll, we'll show you around. Marshall, do we show people around pretty well? Boy, they do it right. <laughs> we want we want beer and we want we want meat. Oh, those are easy. Yeah, <laughs> that's the easy parts. All right, cool. Look, listen, honestly, love it, Eric. Love everything you're doing. You know, we appreciate it. Anything anything we can do for you, let us know. Marshall, good to see you always, brother. Um, yeah, off to a conference. Yeah, thank you, guys. All right, what do you think of that one? How cool is Eric? How cool is the work he's doing? Also, Marshall, love him. Love that guy. If you didn't check out the film I made, Follow the Money Part 3, where I looked into Bitcoin mining, do go and check that out. Marshall features at the end. He helps me kind of rationalize or understand some of the things I've seen. But we are definitely going to get out there. I've never actually been to Africa, but we're going to do it this year. Me and Danny are going to get out to Kenya, I think it is. Yeah, we're going to get out to Kenya, go and see the project and probably make a film while we're there. Anyway, let me know what you think of the show. Drop me a feedback. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Apart from that, I will see you all soon.